in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard's Star Talk Report highlights the four stars in the constellation Pegasus. Master Gardener Barbara Cortling shares her mindful wisdom and thoughts on bees and other pollinators. Stephanie Phillips visits Temple Shalom in Monticello, New York, where preparations are underway to celebrate Rosh Hashanah. In her segment Now You Know, we'll learn about the use of apples and honey for this seasonal holiday. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country. But first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. A powerful storm has made landfall in eastern Canada. Fiona is knocking out power with its strong winds and rain. From Montreal, Emma Jacobs reports Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, and Prince Edward Island all under a hurricane warning. People in the path of the storm have been raiding grocery stores, getting boats out of the water, stocking up on fuel for generators. Provincial officials in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia said to have supplies on hand that will last three days. Parts of Nova Scotia have opened evacuation centers and officials running the emergency response have warned people in vulnerable coastal areas to be prepared to evacuate. The storm is unusual for the region, as experts say climate change is making this kind of powerful storm more likely. In Florida, people are being told to prepare a hurricane plan as another system, Tropical Storm Ian, strengthens in the Atlantic. It's expected to approach major hurricane status by next week. A hurricane watch is now in effect for Jamaica and for the Cayman Islands. This hour, the head of the EPA is set to speak in what is considered the birthplace of American environmental justice activism, Warren County, North Carolina. NPR's Rebecca Hersher has more. In 1982, civil rights leaders and residents of Warren County, North Carolina, launched a massive protest against a planned hazardous waste landfill. Protesters argued that it was unjust to dump such waste in a predominantly black community. That protest is widely seen as the beginning of the modern movement for environmental justice. EPA Administrator Michael Regan is traveling to Warren County today to mark the 40th anniversary of those protests and to make a speech about the Biden administration's efforts to protect vulnerable communities from pollution. Poor people and people of color in the U.S. are still less likely to live in places with clean air and clean water. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. Russian forces are launching fresh strikes on Ukraine on its infrastructure and on residential areas. NPR's Kat Lonsdorf reports from Ukraine. At the same time, Moscow is compelling people in occupied areas to vote to join Russia in what the West calls a sham and illegal referendum. A missile slammed into an apartment building in the city of Zaporizhia overnight as people were sleeping, killing one and injuring nine. The governor of the area said Russia was targeting infrastructure near the river. Another Russian missile attack targeted more infrastructure in the northeast, aiming for a dam in the area. This seems to be a pattern lately by Russian forces. The dam was hit in the south last week, causing widespread flooding. In the east, air raid sirens have been fairly constant. This is all happening amid the latest escalation by Russia, including mobilization 
mobilization of hundreds of thousands of men and sham referendums in the occupied areas of Ukraine. Kat Lonsdorf, NPR News, Dnipro, Ukraine. It's NPR News. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farming Country. Coming up on today's show, Master Gardener Barbara Cortling shares her mindful wisdom and thoughts on bees and other pollinators. Stephanie Phillips visits Temple Shalom in Monticello, New York, where preparations are underway to celebrate Rosh Hashanah. In her segment, Now You Know, we'll learn about the use of apples and honey for this sweet seasonal holiday. But first, here is Keith Hubbard's Star Talk Report. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. and country. I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. Hanging low in the east after sunset is a group of four stars that look like a large square or a baseball diamond. These stars form the front half of the body of Pegasus, the winged horse. The four stars are of equal brightness and are known as the Great Square of Pegasus. Since Pegasus is in the eastern sky at sunset, it will remain visible in the sky all night. The constellation is dominated by the Great Square of Pegasus, and crooked lines radiate from two corners of the square. Two lines extend from the topmost corner and are the front legs of the horse, while one line branches out from the rightmost corner and is the horse's head and neck. Curiously, the constellation is only of the front half of the horse. The back half of the horse is missing from the sky. Pegasus appears upside down in the sky with its head toward the south. Pegasus can be found using the North Star, Polaris, in the constellation Cassiopeia. Draw a line from Polaris to the topmost star in Cassiopeia, extend this line by doubling its length, and you will arrive at the leftmost star of the Great Square. Another way to find Pegasus this week is to use Jupiter. Jupiter will be about 15 degrees below the bottommost star of the Great Square all week. Good viewing conditions will persist throughout the fall when Pegasus is rising in the evening, so be sure to head out and look for the great square in the sky. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. For WJFF Radio Catskill, this is Rosie Starr in Wayne County at the Wayne County Fair in August, where some of the 4-H exhibits are available. And the Master Gardeners are here. I've stopped by their booth. And there's a woman here that seems to know a little bit about bees, but more about pollination. But she's a Master Gardener. Tell me your name. Barb Courtling from Honesdale. Hi, Barbara. I'm curious what you know and have come to understand about bees or pollinators? Um, I started beekeeping about eight years ago. Um, my son-in-law is the beekeeper, but I found that just by having bees on my property that increased my pollination of my plants. So my apple trees, my peach trees, blueberries, blackberries, garden, everything. But the other thing I have is I experimented with honeybees, I began to realize that there are just so many other bees out there, and not just bees, but 
other animals that do pollination. So it's really important to not just support honeybees, but to support all of them. And you'll find that there are particular bees that like particular plants. And as you get gardening, then you've realized that. And so it's important to have all of them together. So we have to kind of take care of everybody. Do you incorporate your knowledge into your Master Garden program? Well, I'm only a first-year Master Gardener, so um, by no means an expert, still learning. And I think gardening is kind of like being a doctor. It's a practice, you know. uh, You're always continually learning, always having to go back and take more classes. It's very important that everybody learn these things, though, because As we go on, and with the state of the world right now, it's important that everybody learn the importance of nature as we're feeling with this heat wave we have right now. If some of this can be avoided, it's important that we try and do that. Do you find that people are receptive to learning and being aware of climate change and how the environment has changed and the importance of trying to figure out how to make it better? The people I have talked to, most of them are, but I'm hoping that it's really worldwide. I don't know that, though. You know, we're just in this little spot of Wayne County, so... But I do find that people are being more aware. I think people are trying. I'm hoping that the education catches up so that people can get an education easier on uh, the climate change. Is that barrel of garbage you're burning, how much pollution is that putting in? What is the footprint of that? I think that's all important things to know. You speak as if you're a teacher. Are you an educator? No. (laughs) I was a sales director. (laughs) I think it's the same skills. Oh, maybe so. Um, But I do think it's important that everybody pitch in. In big industry might be one of the worst ones. I'm just throwing that out there. I think it's what we each do contributes to it. It's kind of that community village thing. And I think that's important. The impact of the individual on a community is important. Absolutely. You know yourself that when someone moves into the community and they don't care for their property, it has an effect on everybody's property prices. It works that same way in everything else we do. If you're going to be spraying Roundup on your property or a chemical on your property and that runoff's coming onto my property, that now impacts me. That's now going into the water system. I think those are all things we need to take into consideration when we're doing something, is what is the long-term effect of this? Where is this going? Who is this going to affect? That's very good wisdom. (laughs) Well, is everyone going to agree with that? I don't know that. And, I mean, that's part of the problem, like, that they were having in the Chesapeake, Whereas with agriculture, the runoff from those fields, so now you have to figure out, okay, how can we stop that runoff or how can we eliminate that chemical from getting into the water system and then affecting the food chain further down, which is now, say, taking out the shellfish. You know, you've got to take care of everything because all of those little elements really play a big role. If we lose the bees, there's no pollination. Whether it's just honeybees or any kind of bee. So you have to be careful. And I really think that the less you use chemicals, the better off we can be. But we have to work ourselves into that spot. And we have to educate ourselves. What can we do to eliminate, say, that weed that we're trying to use the chemical on? Do it naturally as opposed to chemically. As individuals, we all have that responsibility, whether we're master gardeners or not. 
you know, when you dispose of that, uh, what's go, where's it going? How's that going to impact? You know, just flushing something down the toilet is not the answer. It all goes someplace. You're powerful in your individualism. I'm very impressed with your enthusiasm and your spirit. Well, thank you. <laughs> you know, when you have runoff on a field, just to give you an example, I was at my daughter's taking care of her pine trees. They have a farmer that rents their field. The farmer sprayed something on his soybeans. Now, this wasn't in this area, but the runoff from that came down and killed those pine trees. So, why did it kill those pine trees? What was that chemical? You kind of need to know these things. So, of course, then I had to bring it to her attention that she'd lost these pine trees because of this. So, and I mean, I'm not blaming the farmer. Farmers are doing what they've been doing for years and years and years, but it is an education thing. And I think that at some point we kind of have to go back to school and go, okay, what we learned before isn't exactly the answer. We have to find the right answer for right now. Yes, very well put. And I appreciate you sharing that wisdom with us. And I kind of got off the bee thing, but it's caring for nature all around, which is what's going to help us save our pollinators now. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we know bees and trees <laughs> are the essence of salvation for this planet. You start with that and you make it a full community awareness. Is there anything else you'd like to say? I um, appreciate talking with you. Thank you for your time. Enjoy your time at the fair. Thank you. Take care. That was Master Gardener Barbara Cortling speaking to us earlier this year at the Wayne County Fair. Good morning. This is Stephanie Phillips with Now You Know for Farm and Country. Today, I'm at Temple Shalom in Monticello, where preparations for the high holidays are well underway. Rabbi Bella Bogart is here teaching a class accompanied by her friend, Rabbi Charna Rosenholtz. So I'm taking this opportunity to ask some questions about apples and honey and how they relate to the Jewish New Year. Rabbi Bella, please introduce yourself and also please introduce your friend. I'm Rabbi Bella Bogart. I'm currently retired. I've been the rabbi of several different congregations over the years, Reconstructionist, Reform, Renewal, and this is Rabbi Charna Rosenholtz, who can probably introduce herself better than I can introduce her. Charna, I've never met a Magid before. Can you explain what that is? Absolutely. A Magid is often thought of as a storyteller and will tell the stories of the tradition. Amagid is also a Hebrew wisdom teacher and one is who's connected to grassroots wisdom. Do the people actually understand what's going on? So Amagid is not top-down authority, but grassroots storytelling and teaching. Well, this should be interesting. Rabbi Bella, as an independent rabbi without a permanent congregation, what are you doing to prepare for the high holidays? Well, for the last couple of years, I've actually done some high holidays on Zoom, and I uh, decided to do it again this year mostly because it pulls me into the cycle of the calendar, which I find to be a really helpful. You'll be leading or you'll be attending? I'll be leading. It's more of a taste of the holidays for people who aren't quite yet possibly because of COVID or in general, don't necessarily spend the day in a synagogue. So it's an hour here, an hour there to give you the experience and intention of the high holidays. 
And Rabbi Charna, what are you doing for the holidays? I do not have a pulpit. My work is Jewish education, Hebrew wisdom education, and so my business, Shulchan.net, is a learning center. For me this year, for the high holidays, I am going to pray and enter it from the inside out to do some more of my spiritual work. Well, we'll welcome you to Zoom into Temple Shalom. Thank you. (laughs) This program, Farm and Country, generally focuses on country activities and farm products. So we've asked you to talk about apples and honey for Rosh Hashanah. We'll start with honey. When did it become associated with this holiday? So there's no, in the Torah or in the Talmud, there's no injunction to dip apples in honey. There is, way back in the 5th century BCE, in Ezra and in Nehemiah, there's a direction of the Jews of Jerusalem to eat sweet on Rosh Hashanah. So then it becomes a question of, well, what was considered sweet then? And 1208, sweet here means sweet wine or sweet drinks made of figs, grapes. So that's from Ezra and Nehemiah. So Nivi'im, just to explain, is prophets, prophets, right? Apples are first mentioned as a Rosh Hashanah dish in Machzor Vici, written in 1208. The Jews of France would eat apples on Rosh Hashanah as a symbol of a new beginning. And the dipping apples into honey was added in order to wish us for a sweet year. The use of honey as a teaching tool is also something that oh, is well yeah, known. On the, on the Talmud. Yeah, so there's a tradition when children first learn their first piece of Talmud to take a bit of honey and put it on the page and let them lick it so they know that learning is sweet. Now, not everybody listening is going to know what Talmud is. So Talmud was written in, the Talmud that we're just talking about was written in Babylonia during the exile in what, about the 5th century? Yeah, I mean, it started in about the 5th, 6th century common era and existed in centers, two different centers in Babylonia where there was schools of people that would sit together and look at some of the older text, some of the oral Torah texts, and they'd look at it and say, wow, a lot of these texts were created around the temple sacrificial culture, yet we're not sacrificing animals anymore. How are we going to live this text and adapt it for our time? So it became kind of a modern commentary on an old oral tradition. Modern for that time, and it's quite an extensive commentary. I've heard that the honey referred to in the phrase, the land of milk and honey, isn't what we think of honey. What is it then? Conventional wisdom states that when God promised the Israelites the land of milk and honey, which is what we're really familiar with, actually, I think the whole, and and I do know, this is Devarim 8.8, promised them a land of wheat and barley and vine and figs and pomegranates and a land of oil producing olives and honey, most people believe that it was not bee honey, but more like date syrup. Devarim is Deuteronomy. Devarim is Deuteronomy. Yet it was in Exodus where it was first mentioned that they would be entering a land that was flowing with milk and honey. I know that in modern Hebrew, the word for date honey Silan is not the same as the word for bee honey, dvash. So what word is used in the Bible? Dvash is used in the Bible for this. And we have to remember that 
modern conversational Hebrew and biblical Hebrew do not always follow the same etymological rules. So all within, I actually have within the five books of Moses in front of me, all the different times honey was mentioned. And each and every time it was Dalit Beit Shin Devash. So that is what they used for their understanding of honey, which came from the dates. Modern Hebrew, of course, has its own rules and its own expression. Was bee honey actually known in biblical times, or was this all bait honey? There's a famous story about Samson and the Philistines and Samson's riddle, because when Samson becomes enraged, it's a, it's a long story, but when he becomes enraged, he actually has an experience of killing a lion, and then when he finds the carcass later, it specifically says, uh, swarm of bees and bee honey and he fed the bee honey to people and then he asked the riddle of of these other people like what comes when food comes out of the eater and sweet comes out of the attacker etc what could that be and the story goes on but yeah it specifically does talk so bee honey was known it wasn't until the talmudic period that honey as we know it became specifically referring to bees honey we don't just dip apples and honey. We have lots of honey things. What's your excuse for honey cake and honey confections like teglach? Why specifically honey as opposed to other sweet things? One explanation is that it's compared to the manna that was given in the desert when the Israelites were in the desert and that those wafers were as sweet as honey. So we stick with that honey image to remind us about that. There's also some numerological, numerical reasons in Judaism. The Hebrew letters have numerical values and we often equate things based if they equal the same things numerically and the numerical value for that word that Rabbi Charna was talking about, that dalad vet shin, that devash, is the same equivalent as the words av harachamim, which means our merciful father and it's a phrase that gets used a lot in the high holidays. It's beautiful because the gematria of honey is 306, Correct. which also has 36, which is twice high, twice life. Mm -hmm. Now, this whole thing of gematria might be confusing to some people. Hebrew does not function like the, e the Hebrew alphabet and the English alphabet are very different. Each letter has a numerical value. Each letter has kind of an archetypal energy or pictorial representation of a huge concept. So we take Devash, it's like the Dalit is four, the Beit is two, the Shin is 300, 306. And so there's things that we do to enliven the meaning of the words by comparing it to other words with similar values. I want to say, though, I think it's a really good point. The actual text says, The house of Israel named the food that came down from the sky manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and it tasted like wafers in honey. Mm -hmm. Hence, this sense of honey becomes <clears throat> associated with sublime God food, and everybody likes to sweeten things up, don't they? For sure. Okay, moving on to apples. When and why did apples become a symbol of Rosh Hashanah? There's two things going on here. One is this idea of the apple being the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, which is not an original Jewish concept, came out of Latin, came out of other things. But I found some really beautiful references to apples specifically. In the Song of Songs, it says, As the apple is rare and unique among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved, meaning the people of Israel, amongst all of the other nations of the world. In medieval times, the apples were considered so special that they would carve things in the apple before they ate it to give it that sort of 
sympathetic magic, right? There's all sorts of other quotes. There's mystical things about Jacob, who we talked about briefly earlier. When he came in and got the blessing from his father, when his father was dying, his father says something about the smell of my son coming in from the fields is so beautiful. And the mystical translation of it is that he smelled like apples, that he smelled like an apple orchard. Were there really apples in ancient Israel? The climate seems too warm for apples. As far as I could find out, not the cultivated apples as we know them. There might have been something wild growing that we would think of as maybe like a crab apple, but the apples that we think of originated in Central Asia, not in Africa, where most people think the Garden of Eden is. So, It was in France. Jews of France used to eat these Rosh Hashanah red apples. Remember, mm-hmm. I, I used the day 1208. Since we're talking about agriculture, let us just look at a simple reason Apples are in season in the fall. That's for sure. At least they are here. Rabbi Charna, is there a special blessing to say when you eat apples and honey? There's always a special blessing (laughs) that you say. You want to praise the ground, the earth from which it comes. You always praise. When you say a blessing, you want to say, where is this food from? Is it a tree? The tree is going to have a very specific blessing. And then the beehive, what comes from the honey, will have a specific blessing. Mm -hmm. And on Rosh Hashanah, when you're specifically doing this little sympathetic magic in order to ensure a sweet year, when you take a bite of that beautiful, sweet thing, you say a bracha or, or a phrase. It's not really so much a blessing as it is a phrase asking, may it be God's will for us to have a sweet year. And one more thing, for those who are not so sure, what's an appropriate greeting for Rosh Hashanah? Traditional greetings on Rosh Hashanah include Lishana Tova Tikatevu, which means you should be inscribed. There's this concept of the karma of the next year of your life is being decided in this moment and this metaphor of it being inscribed in a heavenly book who will live and who will die and who will have a year of life and good. So you say, may you be inscribed for a good life. You also just say Shana Tova, which means a good year. Some people say Happy New Year, which is an interesting concept because Rosh doesn't actually mean new. It's the head of the year. Or you can just simply give it a generic happy holiday or good yuntif, which in Yiddish means happy holiday. I love to say shana tova umutuka, just a good and sweet year. And I really wish that for everybody. My feeling is that we have a lot of lemons given to us in life. And the news is giving us a lot of lemons. Yet if we can find some of that sweet stuff, something to sweeten it, Why not turn our lemons into lemonade? So now you know the significance of apples and honey for Rosh Hashanah. The explanation for this sweet tradition came from Rabbi Bella Bogard and Rabbi Charna Rosenholtz. And this has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country. This is your show host, Rosie Starr. Join us Saturday, September 24th, 2022, from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. for the 8th Annual Narrowsburg Honey Bee Festival. Just like the bees, be there, rain or shine. We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers Keith Hubbard and Stephanie Phillips. Special thanks goes to our guests, Master Gardener Barbara Cortling 
and Rabbi Bella Bogart, together with Rabbi Sharna Rosenholtz. They were visiting Temple Shalom in Monticello and spoke to us on the subject of honey and apples for the sweet holiday Rosh Hashanah. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening to Farming Country and financially supporting Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org Hello. If you're a book reader, and even if you're not, I'd like to invite you to join me, Aaron Hicklin, every Sunday at noon for Shelf Life on WJFF Radio Casco, a show about books and the people who love them. Each episode, my guest picks two of their favorite books. I read them, and then we get together to talk about them. That's Shelf Life on Sundays at noon on WJFF Radio Catskill. Uh, hello, everybody. It is Greg Triggs. It is Saturday at 1130 on WJFF, and you're listening to Travels with Triggs. Travels with Travels with Travels with Triggs. Who's he gonna talk to now? What's he gonna talk about? Where are we gonna go? Travels with Triggs. I've got a great show for you today. We are talking to one of my favorite people, a hyphenate, ladies and gentlemen. She has worked in television. She is a stand-up comedian. She writes essays. She has books. She has done so much. It's my pleasure to introduce Mary Jo, as in Joseph, Peel. Hello, Greg. Thank you for that lovely introduction it almost sounds like i've accomplished something oh i think you have um i'm sure i'm sure your name is familiar to many many people in addition to your books you have had a column in minnesota monthly magazine you have had pieces featured on npr you were part of the writing and performing staff for mystery science theater and cinematic titanic Mm -hmm. and i let's face it your biggest credit